Welcome to Notable Nobels, a podcast about the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine. My name is Harrison Doolin. I am a PhD candidate at the University of California, Riverside, and I will be your host for this web series. The purpose of this series is to trace key advancements made in the biological and medical sciences over the past 120 years or so, and we're using the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine as a guide. The Nobel Prize is the most prestigious award a scientist can receive, and it marks discoveries that have made a profound impact on our understanding of human biology and ability to treat diseases. Today's episode is the second of a three-part series looking at Nobel Prizes awarded for the discovery of antibiotics, one of the most important discoveries in the history of medicine. We'll be examining the 1945 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which was awarded to Alexander Fleming, Ernst Chain, and Howard Florey. The Nobel Assembly at the Karolinska Institute chose to give Fleming, Chain, and Florey the award, quote, for the discovery of penicillin, and its curative effect in various infectious diseases, unquote. We'll be going over Fleming's completely accidental discovery of penicillin, how Chain and Flory turned penicillin into a wonder drug, and we'll spend some time discussing the properties that make a successful antibiotic. Now, this whole story begins with Alexander Fleming. Fleming was born in Scotland in August 1881, he went to St. Mary's Medical School at London University, where he earned his medical degree with distinction in 1906. Rather than going into medical practice, he began a research career at St. Mary's under Sir Almroth Wright, a pioneer of bacterial vaccines and one of Britain's leading infectious disease experts. Fleming was a lecturer at St. Mary's until 1914, when World War I brought him out of his lab and lecture hall and into active service. He served throughout World War I as a captain in the Army Medical Corps, and in 1918, he returned to St. Mary's where he would stay for the next 30 years, rising to the rank of Professor of Bacteriology. It was during this time that he would make his revolutionary discovery, which came from his research into infectious bacteria. We fail to appreciate this nowadays, but in the first decades of the 20th century, the days before antibiotics, even small cuts or puncture wounds had the potential to be life-threatening. Bacteria that can make us sick are normally prevented from gaining access to our body by our skin. If bacteria breach the skin, our immune system stands ready to attack and eliminate the invaders. But if the bacteria can get past the skin and the immune system, a serious infection can set in. If the infection spreads to our circulatory system, then we can develop a serious condition called septicemia, a bacterial infection of the blood. Once the bacteria gain access to the blood, they can spread to and attack other organs in the body. And as they do, our body's immune system chases after them, desperately trying to control the infection. However, in its eagerness to stop the infection, our immune system can sometimes end up doing harm not just to the invading microbes, but also to our own bodies. In the case of septicemia, if the infection occurs across our entire circulatory system, then the immune cells in our body will become activated across our entire body, and this results in damage to our blood vessels. So some of those damaged blood vessels can begin to leak, 
leading to a drop in blood pressure and less oxygen delivered by the blood. If the leaking gets to be too bad, organs can begin to fail as they become starved of oxygen and widespread organ failure leads to death. Cases such as this were all too common to doctors living in the age before antibiotics. Whenever the body's defenses were breached and the bacteria were given a chance to infect the blood, the danger of septicemia was real. There had been some progress, however. One person in particular had begun pushing for the use of chemotherapies to treat infectious diseases. That person was Paul Ehrlich, a Nobel Prize winner, who had dreamed up the idea of a, quote, magic bullet. This was a compound that could selectively target and kill bacteria. Ehrlich had marketed his drug called Salverson in 1910 for the treatment of syphilis, and it was an effective drug, but it had a lot of side effects and was difficult to administer. It wasn't quite the revolutionary medicine that Ehrlich had wanted, and it was clear the medical community still had a long way to go in the fight against infectious diseases. Back in those days, childbirth, an incredibly messy and bloody affair, always carried with it the risk of bacterial infection. Prior to antibiotics, millions of mothers were dying from bacterial infections acquired in childbirth. And despite the advancements made in hygienics, with doctors taking extra care to sterilize their hands and equipment, surgery was still a very risky affair. Opening up a patient to perform life-saving surgery carried the risk of giving bacteria easy access to the body. Millions of soldiers in World War I, after having their wounds closed and washed, would nevertheless end up dying weeks later from bacteria that had entered through their open wounds. And there was almost nothing doctors could do about it. Once the bacteria managed to establish themselves inside the body, the options for treatment remained few. Fleming would have seen many such cases during his time of military service. He would have been frustrated by the lack of tools available to treat the thousands of people dying from common bacteria like Streptococcus and Staphylococcus. So he focused his lab work on studying these deadly bacteria. Fleming's famous discovery of penicillin is one of those all-too-common cases of serendipity in science. I've mentioned this before, but serendipity is one of my favorite words. The man who coined the word defined it as accidental sagacity, which is also just a really fun phrase, but leaves you asking, well, what does sagacity mean? <laughs> well, sagacity is a fancy word for wisdom, so we could define serendipity as accidental wisdom. Basically, a serendipitous event is something unexpected or unplanned, but it leads to wisdom. That is exactly how Fleming described his discovery. Reflecting later in life, he remarked, quote, One sometimes finds what one is not looking for. When I woke up just after dawn on September 28, 1928, I certainly didn't plan to revolutionize all medicine by discovering the world's first antibiotic or bacteria killer, but I suppose that's exactly what I did." Unquote. So here's what happened. Fleming had been working with some Staphylococcus bacteria in his lab. He grew the bacteria in petri dishes 
and would occasionally check the growth of the bacteria by taking the lid off the petri dishes to look at the bacteria. Now, taking the lid off the dish would expose the bacteria to the air, which would often lead to contamination of the dishes with various airborne microorganisms. In the lab setting, contamination is normally a very bad thing that forces you to throw away your contaminated experiment. But on September 28, 1928, Fleming paused before taking that step. He had just come back to the lab after vacation with his family, and when he checked his Staphylococcus plates, sure enough, some of them had been contaminated with mold, but then he noticed something which he described with the following words, quote, It was noticed that around a large colony of a contaminating mold, the Staphylococcus colonies became transparent and were obviously undergoing lysis, unquote. Completely accidentally, Fleming had discovered a mold that could kill deadly bacteria. Excited, he began working with the mold, and he identified it as an already discovered fungus called penicillin. Fleming began testing the mold in petri dishes to see which bacteria it could kill. He found it was effective against a wide range of bacteria, including streptococcus, staphylococcus, diphtheria, and pneumonococcus. He called this magical substance penicillin, and he wanted to isolate the penicillin from the mold as a pure substance, but it proved to be technically challenging. He also discovered that the mold, while it was very good at killing many different types of bacteria, it had no effect on other important pathogens such as tuberculosis, E. coli, and Haemophilus bacteria. Fleming published his discovery of penicillin in 1929, but he didn't publish it as a drug. He simply stated that the antibacterial properties of penicillin were useful for preventing contamination when growing Haemophilus bacteria. He continued to study the mold for the next couple of years, but stopped after 1931, continuing to use it only in cell culture. But then something big happened in 1935. Sulfa drugs. The discovery of the antibiotic activity of the sulfa drugs demonstrated that bacteria could be targeted with chemical compounds. This heightened the search for Ehrlich's magic bullet, and many scientists began a renewed search for chemicals that could be turned into antibiotic drugs. It's at this point that the other two 1945 Nobel Prize winners, Chain and Flory, enter the story. Chain and Flory were working in Oxford when they began their work with penicillin. Neither of them was originally from England. Ernest Chain was born and educated in Germany as a chemist, but the rise of Nazi power led him to emigrate to England in 1933. Howard Florey was born in Australia, but moved to England in the early 1920s after he was awarded a Rhodes Fellowship to attend Magdalen College, Oxford. The colleagues began working on Fleming's penicillin mold in 1939, a full decade after Fleming had first discovered the antibacterial properties of the fungus. Chain, the chemist, was able to purify the penicillin compound from the culture media used to grow the mold, and Flory oversaw the first animal experiments. Mice given the drug showed no adverse reactions, meaning it was safe and not toxic to the animals. The pair then began testing the drug's effectiveness at curing bacterial infections. 
they took a group of 50 mice and injected them with lethal doses of Streptococcus bacteria. Half of the mice were then injected with penicillin, while the other half were left untreated. The next day, all 25 of the untreated mice were dead, while only one of the mice given penicillin had died. It was an amazing result. They then repeated the experiment, this time with Staphylococcus bacteria. Again, all the untreated mice died, while only three of the mice given penicillin died. The team published their results in 1940 and began looking for ways they could begin testing the drug in the clinic. However, this proved challenging. The penicillin was still very unstable and difficult to purify in large quantities. They finally managed to produce enough to treat their first patient, a local Oxford police officer, in 1941. The drug worked at first, but then the supply of penicillin ran out, and the patient ended up dying. The team realized they would need to find a way to scale up production of the drug. However, they didn't have the equipment needed for large-scale production. Their small academic lab in Oxford was just not big enough. They realized they would need help from industrial scientists and pharmaceutical companies. However, by this point, Britain was thoroughly preoccupied with World War II, and that included the British pharmaceutical companies. Chain and Flory decided to turn to the United States for help. Flory traveled to the United States in 1941 with the penicillin mold and met with members of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who did have the capacities for large-scale growth of the mold. They also began looking for other ways to improve the efficiency of the penicillin production process. They started looking for other strains of the mold that might produce higher yields of penicillin, and they eventually, totally serendipitously, found one from a moldy cantaloupe that produced six times as much penicillin as Fleming's strain. Flory also began recruiting American pharmaceutical companies for assistance with making penicillin. However, it remained difficult to produce the drug, and many companies were unwilling to devote too much attention to it. In 1942, the first U.S. patient was treated with penicillin. The patient was a woman suffering from septicemia after a miscarriage. Her fever was 105 degrees Fahrenheit when they began giving her the drug, but by the next day, her temperature had returned to normal, and she eventually recovered. Her recovery was amazing, but her treatment used about half of the total amount of penicillin available in the U.S. at the time. <laughs> However, it increasingly became clear that penicillin was an incredibly safe and potent antibiotic, and more and more patients were miraculously cured with the drug. The drug was seen as particularly valuable over the previous generation of sulfa drug antibiotics, as it had fewer side effects and was noticeably more potent. Following the United States' entry into World War II, the U.S. government completely took over production of penicillin, and they were able to make more resources available to pharmaceutical companies for its production. At the end of 1942, the U.S. only had enough penicillin to treat about 100 patients. The increased production methods, combined with the government resources, resulted in the United States having millions of doses of the antibiotic available at the end of 1943. This was distributed among Allied forces during the final years of World War II. 
The drug gained worldwide acceptance and popularity, including among the members of the Nobel Committee, and in 1945, just four years after the first human trial with penicillin, Fleming, Chan, and Flory were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. The benefits of penicillin were clear to see, but scientists wanted to know how exactly did it work? How could this drug so effectively kill the bacterial cells while leaving the human cells alone? To answer that question, we have to go into a little detail about the differences between bacterial cells and human cells. Bacterial cells and human cells maintain their shape with a structure called a cell membrane. Now, in addition to this cell membrane, bacterial cells also have a second structure called a cell wall, and this surrounds the cell and helps it maintain its shape. The cell walls of most bacteria are made up of molecules called peptinoglycans, which the bacteria synthesize when they are actively dividing. Now, it was noticed that penicillin effectively kills bacteria when the cells are actively dividing, and it was also noticed that penicillin produces morphological changes in the bacteria, for example, turning rod-shaped bacteria into spheres. This led researchers to hypothesize that penicillin might interfere with bacterial cell wall synthesis, and this turned out later to be correct. Penicillin works by blocking the linkage of peptinoglycans, which greatly weakens the bacterial cell wall. As the bacteria grows, the internal pressure inside the cell pushes against that cell wall. The weakened cell wall is unable to bear this pressure. Eventually, the pressure becomes too much and the cell bursts, killing the bacteria. Pretty cool, right? Now remember, human cells don't make cell walls, so penicillin has no effect on human cells. This makes it a very safe and very effective medicine. It has been estimated that penicillin and its derivatives have saved as many as 200 million lives in the 75 years since the Nobel Prize was awarded to Fleming, Chain, and Flory. Scientists are still searching for new and better antibiotics, particularly as bacteria develop resistance to the ones we already have. But out of the many antibiotic drugs that have been screened, the vast majority don't end up being marketed. So why might that be? Well, there are multiple criteria that an antibiotic should meet if it's going to be successful. I'll just mention four of them. First, obviously, it must efficiently kill the bacteria or inhibit the bacteria's growth. Antibiotics like penicillin that kill bacteria are called bactericidal. Antibiotics like sulfa drugs that inhibit bacteria growth are called bacteriostatic. The easiest way to test if an antibiotic can kill or weaken a bacteria is in a test tube or a petri dish, the same way Fleming originally showed penicillin worked against strep and staph bacteria. But showing that a chemical can kill bacteria in a petri dish is not enough for it to be used as an antibiotic. There are quite a lot of chemicals that are very good at killing bacteria, but you would not want those chemicals inside your body, like bleach, for example. So the second criterion for a good antibiotic is that it must not be toxic to human cells. 
This has been a criterion ever since Paul Ehrlich first described antibiotics as magic bullets that could selectively target the bacteria while leaving the host cells alone. The third criterion for a good antibiotic is that the antibiotic must be stable at physiological conditions. So what do I mean by that? Well, physiological conditions are the normal conditions found in your body. So something that happens a lot is a new antibiotic will be discovered that can kill bacteria in a test tube, and that antibiotic will not be toxic to the host, so it fulfills those first two criteria. But then the antibiotic will break down in the body before it has a chance to kill the bacteria. For example, there are a class of molecules called antimicrobial peptides that are not currently used as antibiotics because enzymes in our body break down these peptides before they can kill the bacteria. So let's say you find an antibiotic that can kill bacteria or inhibit their growth in a person without being toxic to the host, and it doesn't break down in the body before it can kill the bacteria. Is that enough to make it a good antibiotic? Well, maybe, but if it's going to be of any use to anyone, it should fulfill the fourth criteria for a good antibiotic, and that is that it must be cheap and easy to manufacture in large quantities. This is particularly important when dealing with infectious diseases, which can spread quite rapidly. Now, we have seen both in the story of penicillin and in our current day with coronavirus vaccines that manufacturing hurdles and drug costs can be quickly overcome if the need is dire. But many drugs have been shelved in the past because the cost of manufacturing them was greater than the medical need. So even after an effective antibiotic has been discovered, it may not end up being distributed, and there's still room for methods to improve drug manufacturing and drug distribution. So that concludes this 10th episode of Notable Nobels. This episode was recorded on June 26, 2021. I want to thank Digital Mind Productions for providing the music. Next time on Notable Nobels will be part three of this series on antibiotics. Now, while the world was enjoying the benefits of sulfur drugs and penicillin, there was one infectious disease that proved resilient to these new antibiotics, and this pathogen was killing millions of people every year. That pathogen was Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the causative agent of tuberculosis disease. What antibiotic was eventually able to conquer this deadly pathogen? Well, listen next time to find out. Thanks so much for listening. See you then.